I understand that uh, last week we talked about baptism, and I hear that Jay got baptized in questions, so that's, uh, that's awesome. Uh, just so you know, I'm going to, we're having our very first baptism in our building, uh, next, in our new building next uh, Sunday evening, and so I'm going to preach a message on Christian baptism and just kind of go through a whole theology of it. Um, and I, I should do it before the baptism, but that's, I can't do that uh, um, Organizationally, so we'll baptize first and then tell you what we just did um, after that. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about Israel and the church as the second part of Module 5, Session 13, Ecclesiology 3. And if we can, um, I, I don't know if I'll get to it, but I'm, if we have time, I'm going to start. Uh, just kind of a preview, I will spend one or two weeks after that, and, and I'm not going to go fast on this, I'm going to spend one or two weeks uh, on a paper that I wrote, it's basically 32 reasons why the church is distinct from Israel, and that's such an important topic, and we'll hit that today, but I'm, I, I've, I've hit it at a deeper level, I think, and, and I want to go through it because it really, it, it cuts to the core of how we interpret Scripture, it cuts to the core of the character of God, it cuts to the core of how you, how you understand the whole Bible. So I, I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, I, I do it every couple of years, and I think it'll be useful for you. But first, let's pray, and then we'll look at Israel and the church, uh, kind of an overview. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a, a cooler morning. We're getting some relief in the weather, and we're thankful for that. But Lord, we know that we're not getting any relief in our culture, in our government, in uh, the nation we live in, which is clearly under the judgment of God at this point. And, and we thank you, Lord, for the church and the opportunity to gather on the Lord's day and to get a little taste of heaven, to get a little bit away from the world for a while, to hear your word, to sing your praises, to be with God's people. Lord, uh, we're, we're so thankful for the Lord's day. And I, I pray for all of us, Lord, that this would be a day that would just feed our souls and that we would serve you and love you by loving one another. Help us to learn with open hearts, eager minds today, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, Israel and the church. Um, Sometimes we uh, dispensationalists are accused of of hammering this point home um, and being a little bit overzealous about Israel. I, I would just urge you to remember that every book in the Bible except two are written by Jews. Um, and the two not written by Jews were, uh, uh, that's Luke and Acts. Um, he wrote those books based on information given to him by Jews. So uh, our Bible, our faith is a very Jewish faith. And so, of course, that becomes now um, a, a hugely debated area of discussion. So I'm going to um, just introduce this a little bit for, for a moment. This is debated because it really cuts to the, to the very core of what the Bible means. And it cuts to the core of um, whether the Bible continues meaning what it said now as opposed to uh, when Old Testament books were written. That is at the heart of this issue. Um, the Israel and the church debate is really almost just the result of a bigger issue. And that is, does God, uh, does God change? 
And I would, I would submit that anyone who says that um, God's plan for Israel has changed is saying that God has changed. And some would say, well, I would never say that. But that, that is what you're saying, particularly when you say that the New Testament now reinterprets the old. Um, that's that's uh, someplace we just can't go. This is really at the heart of the debate between covenant theology and dispensationalism. And um, just to be clear, obviously, um, covenant theology and dispensationalism aren't a direct... You, you can't compare them directly. What I mean by that is that they actually emphasize different areas of theology. So, uh, in other words, covenant theology highly emphasizes soteriology, um, the doctrine of salvation. And, and we would agree with them wholeheartedly in just about everything in that area. They have led the charge in proper soteriology. Um, I'll, I'll say this, there is no such thing as a seeker-sensitive covenant theology church. Because their stance on the gospel is so clear and so lofty. Um, Covenant theology is very much about a proper view of God. And yes, a proper view of Scripture. How we get to uh, get to the truths of Scripture, we differ with them, but their view of Scripture is lofty and good. Dispensationalism doesn't really address soteriology. Dispensationalism addresses ecclesiology, the study of the church, eschatology, the study of the end times, and bibliology, how you understand the Bible. So, so while there is overlap, it's not a direct correlation. It's you, you can believe elements of covenant theology, and I do, because it's not covenant theology, it's just the Bible, and you can believe elements of dispensational theology as well. So, um, so we want to be really clear that for the most part, we would say that covenant theologians are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we want to be clear about that. But it, it begins to interfere with how we can interpret scripture and how we can understand our God. Covenant theologians argue that the church is the new Israel or the true Israel that either replaces or fulfills national Israel's identity and role and blessings. Um, There are all kinds of covenant theologians that deny that this is what they say, but they do say it. It's very, very uh, easy to document. This is a belief called supersessionism. Um, supersessionism is that the church has superseded Israel. That now we, we are either, either we're Israel or we've replaced Israel. There's so many different permutations. So covenant theology would argue that in the Old Testament, um, Israel was the church. And we get this from many of the reformers. John Calvin called Israel the church, the gathering, the ecclesia. Um, and that's based on a really thin evidence, um, what's called lexical evidence, which is the least powerful evidence. That is that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the gathering of Israel in the Old Testament is sometimes called the ecclesia. The gathering. That's just a word that means gathering. But many words can come to have a technical uh, connotation to them. Um, for example, apostle. Um, Apostle, capital A. There's 12 of them. Uh, 13 if you count Paul. Little a, generally speaking, the word apostle is used in the New Testament to speak of anyone that God has sent out. Jesus himself is called an apostle. So you see there's a a technical use of a word and a non-technical use. So 
The covenant theologians would argue that Israel in the Old Testament was the church and that there is one overarching covenant of grace. We would argue that the church is not the new or the true Israel and that the, the groups remain distinct in some important ways. Now, I have up here on this slide, we do want to point out points of continuity between Israel and the church. And there's more points of continuity than there are discontinuity, to be really clear about that. But points of continuity, um, first of all, metaphors and imagery for Israel are used to the church. We are called the people of God. Romans 9, 24 through 26. First uh, Peter 2, 9 and 10 uh, were called the people of God. Now, um, I've been reading a lot on introductions to First Peter, and I, I'm seeing a reasonable argument that First Peter was written primarily to Jews. And so when they're called the people of God, they're still being addressed as Jews. That's a, that's a whole other issue. But you read the first two verses of Peter, who's it addressed to? It's addressed to Jews. So... Uh, but that has been so universally applied to the church that we, we are the people of God, particularly in this era. Uh, another metaphor, imagery for Israel used in the church, the temple. 1 Corinthians 3, that we are the temple of God. Um, we, we, we use this all the time, don't we? The Holy Spirit resides in me. I am the temple of the living God. Even the metaphor of circumcision is applied to the church in Philippians 3, verse 3. We're also related, highly related, to some of the covenants of Israel. We're related to the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians 3, 8, and 9 uh, tells us this. How are we related to the Abrahamic covenant? Part of the Abrahamic covenant is that through one man, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's us. And so we're thankful for that. We're obviously related to the new covenant. And, and never forget this. The new covenant wasn't God's covenant with the church after Israel failed. The new covenant is God's covenant with Israel that we get to be a part of. Uh, there's, a, there's a big difference between those two. Uh, we get, as Romans uh, talks about, we get grafted in to that. Now, does that mean that we're all the same? No, it doesn't. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13 says that Gentile Christians are now near the promises and covenants given to Israel. We get a lot of the same stuff. We have uh, the, the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the, the unity of the people of God. And then we would take the point of continuity what Ephesians two fifteen calls the one new man. That along with believing Jews, Gentile Christians now comprise the one new man. And that is often used for an argument to say, you see, we're all just one people of God. There's no distinction. Let me ask you a question. When you became a Christian, did you quit being male or female? No, you didn't. And we could go down all the other uh, permutations of that. You didn't quit being male and female, yet are we together one new man? Absolutely. When a Jew becomes a Christian, he doesn't quit being part of Israel. When a Gentile becomes a, a Christian, he doesn't quit being a Gentile. And yet we're one new man. So that's, that's not hard to explain at all. Those are the points of continuity. But there are points of discontinuity. And these will, these will be some ones that I'll review when we go through my 32 reasons uh, why the church is not Israel. But I'm going to just give you a few here. First of all, the church is never called Israel in the New Testament. 
It never is. The New Testament distinguishes Israel in the, and the church in such a way that rules out the idea. It rules out the idea that the church is now identified as Israel, or the church uh, entirely inherits all of Israel's promises and all of their covenants, excluding a national Israel. It, it is really clear. The title Israel is used 73 times in the New Testament, and every single time it's used of ethnic Jews. Sometimes it's used of Jewish Christians, but it's never to to compile them all into one big group. Now, there's a couple of disputed references, but out of 73, about 70 of them are clearly national people, the national people of Israel, a, a covenant people. Another discontinuity. The New Testament still constantly refers to national Israel as Israel. And and you say, well, but that's the church. The problem is is that there's a distinction, Israel and the church. And, And that distinction should be erased. Wouldn't you think that one verse in the New Testament would say that the church is now Israel? But there isn't one. Not not one. Another discontinuity. The promises for national Israel are still viewed as belonging to them, belonging to the nation. Paul linked national Israel to the covenants, to the promises of the Old Testament, even while they're in a state of unbelief, that that's still coming for them. This is further proof that the church hasn't entirely absorbed Israel's blessings. Paul referred to Israel as his, quote, kinsmen according to the faith, and he ascribes to them the covenants and the promises. This is in Romans 9, 3, and 4. These words were written after the beginning of the church. So what does that mean? It means that the church didn't rob Israel of her blessings, that we we didn't take over. The term Israel continues to be used for the natural, uh, not the spiritual descendants of Abraham after the church was instituted and is not equated with the church. Uh, Let me take a little side note here. I have the, the joy of doing that. Are you spiritually descended from Abraham? Yes, you are. Now, the book of Galatians tells us that really clearly. Why are you descended from Abraham? Because he is one who came to faith by faith. He came to God by faith. You are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And on top of that, God did not just promise Abraham, you will be the father of a nation. Abraham, it means father of many nations. So you, he is your spiritual father. Does that make you part of Israel? No, it doesn't. So uh, we, we would maintain that discontinuity. And, and by the way, there's this, uh, and I'll, I'll address this more next week, there's this whole uh, straw man argument. A straw man argument is when you, when you tell me that I believe something I don't actually believe and then you argue against it. Um, and the straw man argument is, well, uh, are you saying that there are two separate peoples of God and God loves one more than the other? No, no, there isn't a dispensationalist who's ever walked the earth who's ever said that. Um, what we are saying is that God's people of Israel are the distinctive leaders of God's people. And if you read through Isaiah and see the relationship between Israel and Gentiles in the coming millennial kingdom, what you see is Gentiles loving being around Israel and the Jews. That ten Gentiles will grasp the robe of a Jew and say, teach me about the Lord. So it's, it's a little bit arrogant to say, well, you know, Californians are really the, we've taken over now as the new people of God. No, um, the, the capital of Israel will be Jerusalem and the capital of the world will be Israel. So you can't get away from that. 
The book of Acts, clear distinction between Israel and the church. In the book of Acts, both Israel and the church exist simultaneously, but the term Israel is used 20 times in Ecclesia for the church 19 times, but they're always kept distinct. Now, why is that important? If you were writing the Bible and you were trying to show that the church is the new Israel, what book would be the most important one to do that in? It would be Acts, the birth of the church. Um, it, Peter would have said, sorry, Israel, you're done. We're the church now. He doesn't do that. He addresses them, men of Israel, and he addresses them nationally. Then you have the continued term of the, the use of the term Israel for the physical descendants of Jacob. This is evidence that the church is not Israel. Robert Sosi in his book, The Case for Progressive Dispensationalism, says this, The church is not identified with Israel. They share a similar identity as the people of God enjoyed equally the blessings of the promised eschatological salvation. But this commonality does not eliminate all distinctions between them. So, let's go through some of the kind of the uh, couple of the so-called proof texts. There's two big ones um, for Israel being the church, the church being Israel. Um, the first one is Galatians six sixteen, and this is still in the ESV. So I'll just read it in the ESV. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And that's the big phrase right there. The Israel of God. And that's sort of a giant aha. See, the church is the new Israel. Some believe that Galatians 6.16 says that Gentile believers are now Israel. Is that what's actually happening? It doesn't identify Gentile believers as Israel. The context of the letter is that Paul is defending the concept of salvation by grace through faith against the error of the Judaizers. The Judaizers held that circumcision contributed to your salvation. And by doing this, Paul singled out those Christian Jews in Galatia who correctly believed the gospel of grace and didn't follow the errors of the Judaizers. And so Paul commends those Christian Jews and he said, you are the Israel of God. Are they still part of Israel? Amen back there. Yes. Yes, Ryland. (laughs) Preach it. He's saying you are the Israel of God. That is absolutely in keeping with the next passage we'll look at, Romans 9, 6, that all who are of Israel are not Israel. The Israel of God are saved Jews. So it's exactly in keeping. There are no other passages, by the way, in all the New Testament that could even be construed as identifying the church as Israel. So you're, you're hanging your whole theology on one phrase of one verse out of thousands in the New Testament. Context is everything. Let me read the context. Well, we'll start back here. Uh, Galatians 6, verse 15, 14, 13. There we go. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they want to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk in step with this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. 
From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for, my, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Why am I reading that context to you? What He's saying goodbye. He is closing out his letter. And if his intention is to drop this bombshell that the church is the new Israel in his final statements of see you soon and it's great talking to you um, that's not the place he would do it not in a million years so it is very very unlikely in the final benediction of the letter that he suddenly says oh by the way Gentiles are the new Israel Paul doesn't ever drop bombs like that if he does he takes chapters to explain it and then the other big one is Romans 9.6. Romans 9.6 is another passage used by supersessionists to show that the church is explicitly called Israel. But Romans 9.6 says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So, some see the first mention of Israel as a concept that goes beyond ethnic boundaries. That uh, for some, Paul is allegedly making a distinction between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel that includes all believers, including Gentiles. But remember, um, again, Romans 9.6 doesn't identify the church as Israel. And by the way, just read Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's not about Gentiles, except to say that we've been grafted into whom? Into Israel. Romans 9, 10, 11 is all about Israel. He's not saying that believing Gentiles are now part of Israel. Instead, believing Jews are the true Israel. Remember, we've used the the two circles, the big circle, everybody who's ever been born of Abraham, the little circle inside it, everybody who's ever been born of Abraham who comes to saving faith in Christ, that is the Israel of God, that is those who belong to Israel. And that only makes sense. Uh, The book of Zechariah tells us that during the great tribulation of all the Jews living on the earth, one third of them will survive and be saved. They are true Israel. So he's simply saying that true Israel will be made up of saved Jews. Let's keep going. Whoops, did I miss one? No, there we go. We're still in points of discontinuity here. The New Testament affirms a future for national Israel, and so the church can't be the new and true Israel. It just can't be. Matthew 19.28, Luke 23.30, Jesus' words here are explicit evidence that Jesus expects a restoration of national Israel. Let me read these to you. Matthew 19.28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, there even there's a there's a, a contingent of dispensationalists that we would disagree with. Um, they would say that Jesus isn't speaking to the twelve apostles; he's speaking to the church, and that the church will rule over Israel. That is not indicated anywhere in Scripture. Um, that is an arrogant view, I would call it, to say that uh, that the church is the truly faithful set of people, so we'll rule over Israel. Yeah, there will be an Israel, but we'll be ruling over them. Twelve thrones, twelve tribes, twelve leaders. If you take the text at its face value and stop inserting uh, theology into it, then it's, it's twelve men ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. 
So is it possible, though, that Jesus is referring to the church? Are the 12 tribes a representative of a new people? Well, if you read through Matthew, Matthew always makes a distinction between Gentiles and Jews. Why? Because Matthew was a Jew of Jews. And Luke always uses the word Israel in reference to Jews as well. How about these, these texts? Matthew 23, 37 through 39 and Luke 13, 34 and 35. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Behold, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is important because it teaches that Jesus is saying you will be judged, but he's also giving hope. It is a teaching of both judgment and hope. Uh, This is essentially, those three verses are a, a summary of all the minor prophets. Judgment, but hope. And that's what he's teaching. There's the hope of restoration for the future. Luke 21, 24, Jesus says, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. There's not a period there, there's a comma. Until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What's the time of the Gentiles? We're in it, right? He says, until the time of the Gentiles are fu- the times of the Gentiles rather are fulfilled. What does that mean? It means that Jerusalem will be under Gentile control for a period of time known as the time of the Gentiles, and the until indicates a limit on the judgment of Israel. Uh, even today, literally in the city of Israel, it's divided into quarters. The Jews don't control it, and uh, it's just a it's a it's a Glorious and a terrible city all at the same time. Because there is the, the history of our Bible lived out right there. And yet, uh, much of the city controlled by people who hate and deny the existence of the living God. Acts 1, 6 and 7. This is a significant passage that supports the idea of a restoration of national Israel. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? If the kingdom is not being restored and if the church is the new Israel, this is the final question that the disciples ask Jesus. Do you think he would have said something about it? Do you think he would have said, uh, hey, guys, you just need to give up on that. You you need to move to California because that's where it's at now. (laughs) Instead, he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. What is that? The kingdom will be restored. I'm just not telling you when. That's the only possible answer. It shows that even at this late date in the earthly ministry of Jesus, they fully expected a restoration of of the nation Israel. And Jesus didn't correct that. He gives no rebuke, no correction for that belief. And so he affirms that they are correct in their understanding. We could keep on going in discontinuities. The New Testament reaffirms that the covenants and promises still belong to the nation Israel. Romans 9, 3 and 4, For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. If the nation of Israel had been permanently superseded by the church, 
you wouldn't expect a statement in the New Testament that the covenants and the promises are the possession of the nation after the church has been inaugurated. You couldn't, that, that wouldn't make any sense. If we're the true Israel, and if it were true that the nation of Israel was no longer related to the Old Testament covenants, then why does he state that the promises and covenants still belong to Israel? I, I know I won't ever be able to do this, but I would love to find somebody who came up to me and said, I've never read the Bible, I don't know anything about the Bible, never sat in church, never been in a Sunday school class one time, but I just came to faith in Christ based on only one verse, and that's the only verse in the whole Bible I know, and that's John 3.16. I wish I could say, here is a Bible, don't let anybody talk to you, read the whole thing, and then tell me what you think about Israel. I guarantee you they would get to the end of the Bible saying, man, the whole thing's about Israel. And I'm just glad I get to be a part. I I would love to do that. That's uh, on my bucket list, but I don't know if the Lord will ever provide that. The doctrine of election. This ensures national Israel's continuing role in the plan of God. And this this is where it gets really serious for us. Because... We can have theological debates and discussions with covenant theology brothers, but this comes down to the nature of the doctrine of election, which is reflective of the nature of God. From the very beginning, God's choice of Israel was based on his unconditional electing purposes. Um, There have been many people who were previously unconvinced of the doctrine of election, but convinced by the Old Testament. Because of God's choice of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his clear choice of the people. It wasn't because of anything Israel had done. Even Deuteronomy 7 says this. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. How many? One. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. That's a clear electing of God's people. So, let me ask you a question. Is the doctrine of election conditional? Can you undo it? Did Israel undo their election because they crucified Christ? This is a whole section in Deuteronomy 7 that specifically teaches it is unconditional. He chose you not because of this, not because of that. Why is it? It's the only reason for the doctrine of election that's given once in Deuteronomy and once in Ephesians 1 that he loves you. That's the only reason ever given for the doctrine of election that I can find in Scripture. So is this confirmed in the New Testament? Romans 11.1 I asked him, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now let me stop right there. What is Paul doing here? Can you say... Well, Paul, you know, you're just a part of the new Israel, which is the church. Why is he giving his genetic makeup then? That he's part of the tribe of Benjamin, which probably means he was left-handed, by the way. So that's just a, a, a side note. He's saying, I'm a blood member of the nation of Israel. You can't spiritualize that. Well, Benjamin actually just means that, you know, Paul was small and Benjamin was the youngest. And, and you just, you can't go down that road. But verse 2 you can't get clearer this than this. God has not rejected his people whom he, here it is, foreknew. 
the nature of the doctrine of election is that it is permanent. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because if the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament to mean that when God chose Israel, what he really meant is that God chose the church, then what's to stop God from saying what I really meant when I said I chose you is that I chose somebody else? See, if God elects a nation but doesn't stick to his word, then our election and our salvation is is up for grabs. And it is conditional also. Um, so that's why, that's why this is so important for me personally, because it, it speaks to the character of God. When you say that the New Testament changes the Old Testament and reinterprets it, you're, you're stepping on heresy. You're absolutely stepping on really, really dangerous ground, because now you're reinterpreting things to fit your theological system. Um, there's a, uh, there's a, an article just, just kind of going viral on uh, social media right now. It's called something like, uh, Postmillennialism Has Its Roots in Covenant Theology. And first of all, we're not postmillennial, nor are we covenant theologians. But that's like saying one guy who's wrong quoted another guy who's wrong. And that's why I believe it. <laughs> There's no authority in that. There's no authority in saying, I believe something because of a theological system. Now, I'm going to get more into that uh, next week. And then, of course, there's Romans 11.26. This affirms the future for Israel. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from, from Jacob. Now, that's, that's a aha. All Israel will be saved. See, um, that, that has to be the church and so forth. This actually gives us evidence that the members of the family of God ultimately are only those who are saved. Let me tell you, the top, in the top ten questions I get um, from uh, you as church members and other people writing me, will my unsaved relative, is she still my mother? If she dies without Christ, is my son who dies without Christ still my son? That is a hard question and I don't take a hard stance on that. But the family of God is defined by those who are saved. And I know that's a tough pill to swallow, but we don't want to be more righteous than God is. We don't want to try to be that. According to this, Israel is consisting of those who receive Christ as Savior. That's Israel. And you say, well, but God chose the whole nation. Uh, Tell that to the three million who dropped dead in the wilderness for 40 years. Were they chosen individually? Maybe. Nationally? Nope, they weren't. Evidence that Israel will experience a national restoration at some point in the future is clear from Romans eleven twenty six. All Israel will be saved. So regardless of, uh, of, of how you define Israel, we at least have the statement here, Israel will be saved. Um, and it's a future thing. The deliverer will come from Zion. This is, I was just thinking the other day, I need to preach a sermon on 25 things every Christian needs to know to hear sermons. And one of them is, what is Zion? Zion is a, is a euphemism for Jerusalem. It's one of the seven little mountains in Jerusalem. And I think there's seven. Are there seven or is that Rome? Oh. Well, anyway, there's a bunch of little mountains and, and one of them is Zion. So when you say Zion, that's Jerusalem. The deliverer comes from where? Jerusalem. That's as Israelite as you can get. 
The other 10 references to Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11 refer to ethnic Israel. So the Israel who will be saved in 11:26 must also refer to ethnic Israel. You must take uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 as a unit. It, it is absolutely one divinely inspired essay to say that all Israel will be saved. Meaning all those who have come to faith in Christ. Now, here's, the, here's kind of a, a, a tricky question for us, and I addressed this briefly a minute ago. What about Christians as sons of Abraham? Galatians 3, 7, and 29. Galatians 3, 7 states that those who exercise faith are sons of Abraham. Verse 29 says that those who belong to Christ are Abraham's descendants, were heirs according to the promise. Supersessionists have argued that since Gentiles are sons and descendants of Abraham, that we are also spiritual Jews. Well, we said this a moment ago. Abraham's fatherhood goes beyond being the father of ethnic Israel since he trusted God before he was recognized as a Hebrew. Um, what, What was Abraham? He was a Gentile who became the first Jew. So... Is he your spiritual father? Absolutely. Are you related to him by blood? Some of you might be. And here's another question I get. Well, what if I'm like 2% Jewish? You know, we all have those genealogies uh, now. Well, I don't know, but God's really gracious. You know, wouldn't that be great uh, that you, you get some of those benefits as well? Um, maybe you get 2% of the land that other Jews get. Uh, who knows? <laughs> The New Testament portrays Abraham as the father of Israel and the father of Gentile believers. He was a believer by faith before he was circumcised. He's simply the father of all who believe by faith. Um, and, And again, if I am the father of a boy and of a girl, the fact that I am the father to both of them doesn't make them uh, unigender. They're still different. I alluded to this earlier, but I'm going to repeat this just a a bit. Why does Israel and the church matter? The first one is hermeneutics. The Old Testament means now what it meant when it was written. It, It must. To arrive at Israel's demise, you have to change the meaning of the Old Testament. And we don't get to arbitrarily change the meaning. And here's the thing. You ready for this? All the people who agree that the New Testament changes the meaning of the Old Testament disagree on how. So who are you supposed to believe? That's a pretty big thing. If there was, it might be worth listening to if there was broad, general, very precise agreement. But there isn't. Depends on who you read. Not only would the Lord have something to say about changing the meaning, but men like uh, Moses and Joshua and Ezra and Isaiah and and Hosea and Daniel, they might have an opinion. Uh, Hey, no, I meant what I wrote. Because remember, the Bible has a divine author, but it has human authors as well. Jesus never reinterpreted the Old Testament one time to anyone. He never did it. He did add to Scripture, however. Um, How do we know that Jesus added to Scripture? Because he talked. And anytime Jesus spoke and somebody wrote it down, that is Scripture. It is the Word of God. Um, He added to our understanding of Scripture. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's not not changing the Word of God. That's adding to our understanding um, from a heart level. There are also ethical implications for how we view the Jewish people. 
The belief that the church has replaced Israel has led in Christian history to anti-Semitism in preaching and in action and viewing Jews as the enemies of God. And boy, that has been vehemently denied. But it is so easily proven from history. Um, A guy by the name of Horner has written two books, Eternal Israel and Future Israel. And he documents this going all the way back to Augustine. Um, Anti-Semitism has its basis in the belief that God is done with Israel as a nation. That's where it started. And we're ashamed of that. We don't own it. Um, And I don't need to repent of it because I've never believed that. But that's where it started. That's just an, an historical fact. And so even today, if you listen to a sermon by a pastor who believes that God is completely done with Israel, he gives concessions. Now, you know, we need to love the Jews because we can help them be part of the church. And you even hear that tone of voice of na 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 That's not the Bible's tone of voice. The Bible's tone of voice about Israel is a growing crescendo toward a glorious kingdom run by Israel. That's the Bible's tone. The whole last book of the Bible leaves you out after chapter 3 you're done where are you you're in heaven just watching the the glories happen on earth uh, of the tribulation and the saving of national Israel and millions and millions of Jews fleeing Judea and going to the south uh, to to get away from Antichrist And, and I don't know if we'll be watching but we can be rooting for them and God's saying I will protect you I will keep you for 1260 days in the last three and a half years uh, the, the Bible crescendos toward a glorious climactic moment and that is the return of Jesus Christ where? to the Mount of Olives not to Manhattan uh, Manhattan will be gone he will have decimated that island probably and then again you have the uniformity of the doctrine of election and I, I always forget what's in my notes and I do it off the top of my head so we're just repeating this again if election in the Old Testament be, means God chooses you, but if you mess up, He unchooses you, that's, that's pretty serious for us. That makes us all... Like, if you're going to play it safe, then you better be Arminian. Just to play it safe and, and keep earning your salvation. So the security of our salvation is brought into question. Listen to this from a, a theologian named Wolfhart Pannenberg. In his systematic theology, how could Christians be certain of their own comparatively new membership in the circle of God's elect if God, for his part, did not remain faithful to his election in spite of Israel's unbelief? This is the apostle's point when he advocates the inviolability of the election of the Jewish people. Speaking of Romans 11, verse 29. And then there is the character of God issue. God is a promise keeper. God made a promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 15, 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Many, many more. So really it's a character of God issue. I, 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 I'm a bit pragmatic, and I would say that I'm a guy who hedges his bets. Uh, somewhat um, so if I'm going to stand before the Lord and having made a huge error I would rather stand before the Lord having believed that all of his promises to Israel are still coming true because in my heart I believe that he is a God who keeps promises and be corrected and say nope actually all your covenant theologian brothers were right Israel's done the church is it okay fine 
I would rather be corrected in that way than to stand before the Lord and have Him say, Why have you hated my beloved? Why have you hated the people that I promised election to? Why, why are you inconsistent? So, if I'm a guy who hedges his bets, I'd rather believe the thing that, that at least is based on the goodness and the character of God. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of give a little... I don't have the slides for this. It's in a different place on our, on our uh, uh, OneDrive here, and I can't access it right now. But I just want to tell you why this is so serious. And I'm going to just start this... Um, and then we'll, we'll start it over next time. There's a commentator, and I, I appreciate his work. He does really good work. I've, I've used his work. His name is Gary Burge. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, when I preach through John, he's, he's a major resource for me, and I appreciate him a lot. But he writes about the vineyard metaphor of John 15, and he believes that this shows Jesus replacing Israel um, with himself. So that's the other major permutation, that Jesus replaces Israel with himself. But listen to this. This is a long paragraph. The practical implications of this are profound. Christians, particularly Western evangelicals... Okay, stop right there. What he's already saying is that because I grew up in the Western Hemisphere, I'm hamstrung. I can't really understand the Bible the way somebody who grew up in the Eastern Hemisphere does. And that's a, that is a, a faulty claim that's been going around for decades. Um, that's silly. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the same Bible study tools. I have the same, uh, the same access to all the knowledge of God that anyone else does. Christians, particularly Western evangelicals, have been quick today to, today to endorse the territorial agenda of modern Israel for theological reasons. I would agree with that. But here's what he says. Often it is a zeal for eschatological fulfillment that has prompted some evangelicals to make commitments to Israeli nationalism. What is he saying? He's saying he knows that in my heart, I just want this so bad that I'm just going to believe something. Well, he doesn't know my heart and he doesn't know yours. However, deep within the New Testament, meaning I figured it out, but you haven't, Deep within the New Testament is an announcement of a reversal, a radical reversal. Just as Jesus is a replacement for the religious functions of the temple, so too Jesus replaces the religious inheritance of the land. Deep within the New Testament. is one of my biggest beefs with covenant theology is that there is a definite flavor of arrogance to it. Um, and if you read anything by covenant theologians, they love to um, assign labels to theological concepts in Latin. Assigning something in Latin doesn't make it true. It just means it's wrong in a different language. That's, that's all it is. Listen to this quote. And this is in a... This is in a book called Covenant Theology, a Reformed Baptist Primer by Douglas Van Dorn. In other words, he is saying this is what covenant theology is about and written by a covenant theologian. He says, quote, God granted to Abraham a land, Genesis 15, 7, in Christ, who is our land and our rest, capital L, capital R, no place in scripture says that. Just because you capitalize it, again, it's just wrong in a different case. (laughs) The typological land becomes the kingdom. John 18.36 He goes on to say that a physical nation, quote, and a plot of land in the Middle East. You see how he denigrates that? A plot of land. 
What does the Bible call it? It calls it the Holy Land, the Promised Land. The plot of land in the Middle East are merely types or shadows of the spiritual realities we now enjoy. And he does nothing to prove that. That is based on unbelief. And to be fair, I don't think um, Van Dorn came up with any of that. It's a short theology, which means he just quotes a bunch of other theologies. And so this is not based on study of the scripture. This is based on trying to uh, please the generations of covenant theologians behind him. But this is a big, huge deal. And I would challenge anybody to be able to see from Scripture that God has replaced the land, God has replaced uh, Israel with either Jesus or the church. So, what I'm going to do next week is walk through uh, some big picture notes, and then I'm going to start 32 reasons to consider Israel and the church as distinct. And and I think it will be edifying to you. I've done this once or twice, and it's always edifying to me. Um, But I do have five minutes for questions. Most of them will probably be answered next week, but I can can, uh, get sharp now.